The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This episode is a continuation of the AUA 2023 take-home messages presented live in Chicago. And uh, next take-home messages, basic science benign, Dr. Douglas Strand from the University of Texas Southwestern. All right, thank you. So uh, over the last several days, uh, we saw hundreds of abstracts from various disciplines in benign urology on bladder pain and pelvic pain, benign prostatic hyperplasia, lower urinary tract dysfunction, female pelvic medicine, infertility, and stone disease. There were several general themes, disease subtyping, uh, single cell techniques and using human tissues, single cell type targeting and novel mouse models. And more specifically, there seemed to be a, a intense focus on the role of macrophages in disease. And I want to thank my colleagues in all of these disciplines for their help in selecting some of the studies that are highlighted, uh, highlighting each of these disciplines. So the first, uh, we see a study from Aaron Mickle from the University of Florida, a new approach to study urothelial cells and their role in bladder pain. So the use of optogenetic and chemogenetic approaches in novel animal models reveals a new role of peripheral urothelial cells and central hippocampal rostroventral medulla mechanisms in the development and persistence of chronic pelvic pain. So optogenetics employs the natural and engineered photoreceptors to be genetically introduced into the cells of interest, in this case, the urothelium. And as a result, cells that are naturally light sensitive can be made photosensitive and addressable by illumination. So in this study, he, uh, Dr. Mickle used blue light stimulation of the urothelium of the bladder to demonstrate they are not nociceptive and their ability to affect bladder pressure is partially dependent on the P2X receptor. So these types of novel in vivo studies and animal models of chronic pelvic pain should allow the mapping of functional connectivity between bladder primary afferents and the excitability of bladder projecting spinal neurons. <clears throat> so in SBR session two, Nicholas Steers from Columbia University showed us a study where he used 27 cell surface markers to identify specific subsets of leukocytes using flow cytometry and a mouse model of urinary tract infection. And what he found was that there's a distinct population of macrophages present during UTI that are siglic F positive, and these macrophages uh, are absent in normal bladders. What's really interesting is that if these macrophages are carrying antigens to the local lymph node to prime the immune response, it's possible that they can be used as targets for vaccine de development for bladder infections. So another study along this line uh, was presented by Renee Vickman from North Shore University Health System here in Chicago. She utilized single-cell RNA sequencing to define leukocyte functions in benign prostatic hyperplasia. So they showed a study in which men who had taken a Tanercept, a TNF-alpha inhibitor, showed smaller prostate volumes and decreased numbers of CD68-positive macrophages in their tissue. 
And then they did single-cell RNA sequencing on uh, leukocytes from BPH and showed that there's a specific type of resident macrophage uh, that is associated with the international prostate symptom score. The next study I wanted to highlight is uh, very similar and, and in its results to what I just showed. Uh, this was a study presented by Dr. Al Fawari from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. He showed the effect of TNF-alpha inhibitor therapy on growth of the prostate gland. So here they went through their EHR of over 1 million men and found 634 men with serial pelvic imaging that were on TNF-alpha inhibitors. After various exclusions, they found about 200 men who had imaging before and after treatment. These were typically younger men with smaller prostates, but what they found was a significant decrease in prostate volume and growth rate. Another study I wanted to highlight is from Matthew Simmons of Augusta University, also in the BPH Lutz field. And what they were trying to do is also use imaging to determine whether clinical phenotypes could be observed in BPH Lutz patients. So they studied 111 BPH LUTs patients between 2017 and 2022. All had had CT imaging within 12 months of assessment. Hierarchical clustering was conducted to determine whether clinical phenotypes could be identified. And their goal was to uh, eventually increase the number of patients and variables they analyzed to determine whether imaging and documentation of prostate shape uh, present presence of median lobes and calcifications, et cetera, could dictate treatment decisions. Um, and I think that there was a number of these studies that highlighted the need for improved data collection during clinical trials and in, in uh, routine treatment for BPH. The next study I wanted to highlight uh, was presented during a moderated poster session by Heiko Yang at UCSF. Here they use single nuclear RNA sequencing on human patient samples uh, with Randall's plaques and showed that there's a tissue resident macrophage that was associated with uh, the formation of these plaques. So on the top right hand side you can see uh, the, the green looking dots here are the tissue resident macrophages in non-mineralized tissue and on the bottom uh, right-hand side, you can see an increase in that cluster of uh, cells in these Randall's plaques, and they are currently pursuing uh, how this interaction drives the initiation of kidney stones. So uh, moving on to female urology, there was a nice study from Dr. Asali from Case Western Reserve uh, University where they isolated macrophages um, from rat bone marrow. They uh, sorted out macrophage subtypes into M1 and M2 types by flow cytometry. Electrochemically aligned collagen threads were filament wound to produce small collagen meshes and seeded with macrophages and cultured for up to three days. These macrophage subtype seeded meshes were then implanted subcutaneously in rats and harvested at three weeks and three months respectively. Uh, and then explanted meshes were analyzed using histology and immunohistochemistry. What they found was that the delivery of M2 macrophages via collagen mesh can reduce MMP9 while increasing TIMP1, and this is thought to limit collagen breakdown associated with the de development of stress urinary incontinence. Uh, 
Along those lines, there was a study uh, by Dr. Vithalingman from the University of Malaya, where over the last eight years, they've been iteratively designing uh, new uh, collagen implants to support the urethra in females that are uh, incontinent. So in this first in-woman trial, they show stability of the implant over a nine-month period with uh, fairly positive outcomes in the two patients that they have uh, uh, implanted this in to date. Finally, I wanted to highlight a study from Dr. Gwelly at UT Southwestern Medical Center where they used single-cell RNA sequencing on uh, the female urethra from young organ donors to create a cellular atlas of the normal adult human female urethra. What they found was that the cell types in the female urethra um, are actually the exact same as those found in the male prostatic urethra, and that Skene's glands are actually the same as prostate ducts. So yes, ladies, you do have a prostate. Thank you. Great, thank you very much, Dr. Strand. Our next presentation uh, will be on take-home messages from the area of reconstruction. It'll be presented by Dr. Jessica DeLong, Associate Professor at JMD Medical. Good afternoon, we're gonna change gears a little bit to discuss uh, reconstructive urology here. These are my disclosures. So this AUA, we had a robust meeting uh, for trauma reconstruction and diversion. There were a total of 140 abstracts presented across podium, posters, uh, and video sessions, as well as our GER Society meeting and various uh, recon topics at this morning's plenary. It's impossible to distill this down into 10 minutes, but I wanted to go over that as a specialty, we continue to expand. Uh, the utilization of robotics and minimally invasive techniques continues to increase with over a quarter of all abstracts having something to do with that area. Similarly, gender affirmation uh, uh, made up nearly 15% of all presented material continues to grow. I do wanna go over the AUA stricture guidelines update that was released just prior to the meeting. And then we'll discuss a few abstracts looking at upper and lower tract uh, trauma and reconstruction. So the 2023 updates uh, reflect progress in our field and knowledge gained since 2016. There's an emphasis on urethral rest in select patients prior to urethroplasty, uh, avoiding CIC and allowing for appropriate stricture assessment. A new statement was added, it's a conditional recommendation that surgeons may offer urethral dilation or DVIU in combination with a drug-coated balloon for short recurrent uh, anterior urethral strictures. And this is partly based on data from this randomized controlled trial, uh, looking at the comparison between a paclitaxel drug-coated balloon, which you can see on the Kaplan-Meier curve here in red, versus standard of care dilation, which is in blue, significantly improved freedom from repeat intervention at one year. Uh, we were reminded again that perineal urethrostomy is a good option for men uh, who are at high risk for failure from urethral reconstruction, particularly uh, with uh, prior failed repairs. Data also supports now that uh, buccal or lingual mucosal grafts can be used as equivalent alternatives when using uh, these tissues for substitution urethroplasty. 
Importantly, there's a new statement uh, looking at female urethral strictures and different reconstruction options for these women, including grafts, flaps, or a combination. Uh, finally, the robotic approach was included for reconstruction options for recalcitrant bladder neck contracture or post-prostatectomy vesicurethral anastomotic stenosis, highlighting the increased usage of this uh, technology in our field. There was a focus on renal trauma and several abstracts presented on the role of uh, non-operative management as well as factors that are associated with different interventions. Dr. Shaw presented this data on behalf of the TURNS group uh, from the multi-institutional genitourinary trauma study. This is looking at 21 level one trauma centers across the United States. There's sparse data uh, regarding grade five injuries and a reported high nephrectomy rate in the literature, so they wanted to take a look at those patients and potential non-operative management. It's small numbers in this study, but you can see that expectant or conservative uh, management, so percutaneous procedures, angioembolization, uh, were feasible, and there's significant role for these conservative management options, even in grade five patients. Dr. Patel presented this data out of UCSF and Rutgers. Uh, they queried the National Trauma Database uh, and got almost 50,000 patients included between 2013 and 2020. They used a logistic regression model to determine factors that were associated with intervention. They found that patients uh, undergoing nephrectomy were more likely to have had a transfusion, penetrating trauma, uh, or grade four or five lesions. Various patient, hospital, and clinical specific factors are associated with those treatment modalities. Importantly, they found that the uh, age is an independent um, predictor of nephrectomy after renal, renal trauma, so they cautioned that more conservative use of nephrectomy is needed, particularly among the elderly. Dr. Jeremy Myers gave an excellent talk during our GERS session regarding acute management of pelvic fracture urethral injury. There's been a discussion for a long time regarding the utility of endoscopic urethral realignment or SP-tube in these patients. And this is a prospective observational cohort study looking to answer that question. This is their study diagram uh, with patients undergoing either realignment or suprapubic tube placement. Various exclusion criteria you can see here, including a partial injury or realignment that happened outside of their one-week window. They found that these patients tend to be severely injured. Concomitant injuries are common. Bladder injuries in just over a quarter of these patients and many also underwent angio or angioembolization. They found that with their primary outcome, uh, incidence of obstruction, there was no difference between those who'd undergone endoscopic realignment versus suprapubic tube. And similarly, there's no difference in urethroplasty rates. So I think we can say that there's really limited or no role for endoscopic urethral realignment in these patients. There are a number of pa uh, papers on robotic techniques for different upper tract uh, reconstructive options. I wanted to highlight though kind of a, a workup and follow up uh, because I think that might change how we discuss and manage these patients. Dr. Cho presented their proposed classification system for ureteral strictures with the purpose of creating a standard nomenclature uh, goal of validating classification with reconstructive surgical techniques. And you can see here they have the length, segment, and modifiers will ultimately add in etiology. It has good uh, inter-rater reliability and I think will allow us to have more useful discussions uh, when we're talking about ureteral injuries and compare uh, reconstructive operative techniques. 
Dr. Cedars presented their real-world data set of patients out of UCSD, followed by renal ultrasound after upper uh, tract reconstruction. There's no consensus on proper follow-up, whether a MAG-3 still needs to be ordered. And in their retrospective analysis of just over 160 patients, they found that the use of renal ultrasound uh, can be an effective uh, substitute modality. It's quick, easily accessible, low cost, and avoids any invasiveness or radiation. You can also see they suggest an algorithm here for their follow-up that incorporates that ultrasound. Wanted to highlight a large data set looking at robotic lower urinary tract reconstruction. Um, this is a 105 patient case series from a single center out of NYU Langone presented by Dr. Wang, uh, looking at various uh, treatment options for robotic posterior urethroplasty with different techniques including bladder flaps, oral mucosa grafts, or excision in primary anastomosis. They found that when compared to historical data in the literature where you're looking at an open urethroplasty for vesicourethral anastomotic stenosis versus robotic, they found, very importantly, a much better continence rate but equivalent outcomes in terms of patency and success. And this transferred over to the radiated population at least somewhat as well. So a very good option in these patients. Peristomal hernia is a common complication following uh, ileoconduit urinary diversion. This randomized controlled uh, trial looked at the difference that could be made by placing a biologic mesh at the time of conduit creation. They were randomized uh, to either mesh or no mesh in 146 patients. They looked both at radiologic uh, occurrence as well as uh, clinically relevant uh, peristomal hernias between 2016 and 2021. Uh, they were randomized one to one. Uh, the two arms were similar except for a slightly uh, longer operative time in the mesh patients. They didn't find any differences in adverse events particularly related to the mesh, but similarly as you can see on the Kaplan-Meier curve on the right, they did not find a protective effect with the mesh at least in the first two years, although it looks like that might differentiate out over time. As I mentioned, there's an increasing volume of abstracts regarding gender affirmation. Uh, trends this year looking at complications, avenues for improvement. I wanted to highlight one of the posters that uh, won their uh, best in that, in that poster category. Dr. Victor presented this important data on transgender women receiving hormone therapy. They're known to have a higher uh, cardiovascular-related uh, mortality when compared with cis men. And these authors postulated that performing a gender-affirming bilateral orchiectomy uh, sooner rather than later, particularly given long wait times for vaginoplasty, would be protective and helpful for these patients, also with quality of life concerns. And they did find that in all patients uh, who underwent the orchiectomy, they were able to reduce hormone dosages and everyone was able to stop uh, spironolactone completely, which did improve quality of life. The authors then conclude that offering bilateral orchiectomy uh, prior to vaginoplasty should be standard for them. Uh, finally, I just want to highlight this uh, presentation by Dr. Wernenberg looking at uh, very interesting data from the Cleveland Clinic regarding biofilms and implantable devices. Uh, there's a, a known uh, infection rate for artificial urinary sphincter, and in this uh, group of 18 patients, they explanted uh, the device and then ran uh, various tests looking at next generation sequencing uh, among other culture-based approaches and found that there universally was a biofilm and that many of these bacteria could be clinically relevant. Um, you know, these methods and results open new avenues looking at potential um, other coatings and other um, uh, materials in the future and I think it's uh, uh, applicable across multiple specialties. Thanks so much for your attention.
Thank you, uh, Dr. DeLong. Uh, next uh, to do the take-home messages on endourology uh, and stone disease, Dr. Noah Canvasser from UC Davis. Dr. Canvasser. <coughs> Excuse me. Thank you, Dr. Ricardo. Well, thank you as well, Dr. Dunstedt and the Planning Committee for this opportunity. Uh, I am a consultant for both Boston Scientific and Cook Medical. Uh, so there were a number of fantastic presentations during this meeting. Uh, I try to highlight what I thought is most relevant to help your practice as it relates to stone disease. Uh, the first study uh, out of Dr., uh, UCSF, Dr. Sui presented, uh, looking at socioeconomic status and its association with urinary sodium. They used a zip code level data to determine median um, uh, household incomes uh, across the San Francisco Peninsula, and then also captured mean urinary sodium data from uh, the rescue database. And when they divided uh, household income by quintiles, you could see that the lowest uh, quintile was associated with the highest urinary sodium and urinary chloride levels compared to the uh, top quintile. And what you take away from this is that patients who are at risk, patients who are a lower socioeconomic status, uh, should uh, need better dietary recommendations, but also that we probably need to work on programs to improve access to better, less processed food uh, for these patients. Given the recent uh, published article in the New England Journal of Medicine looking at outcomes of thiazide therapy and stone prevention, I thought this article or this pub, uh, presentation was quite timely. This is from Dr. Hollingsworth at North Shore here in town. He studied the real-world effectiveness of uh, preventative pharmacologic therapy. So uniquely, they have a link between Medicare claims data, so both pharmacy and medical claims, and Lithalink. Uh, so they were able to capture 14,000 patients. The most common urinary abnormality linked to Lithalink was hypocitraturia, which is consistent with most of our practices. Approximately 30% of these patients were prescribed um, pharmacologic therapy uh, per guideline recommendation, and alkaline monotherapy was the most common prescription. And using their link, they were able to tell who was consistent and adherent to prescription therapy and who was not, who was not refilling their prescriptions on time. So they looked at symptomatic stone events, and they noted that patients who were adherent to their therapy had a reduced risk of a symptomatic stone event, including ED visits, hospitalizations, and uh, stone-directed surgery. Patients who were non-adherent had a higher risk. So blue represents the adherent patients, red is the non-adherent, and green are those who were untreated and didn't get medication therapy. But the take-home is that patient adherence to medical therapy helps to reduce the risk of symptomatic stone events. Patients have access to numerous over-the-counter therapies to help treat kidney stones. Many patients come to me and ask about alkaline water. The group from UC Irvine published this study looking at the alkali content of over-the-counter alkaline water and noted that no alkaline water does not in fact have any alkali content uh, to speak of, uh, so this should not be considered reasonable therapy. They looked at numerous other over-the-counter options um, and noted six supplements that gave 30 milliequivalents or more of alkali in three or fewer servings. Uh, and I think the take home here is that we have alternative options to prescriptions to give patients Arm & Hammer baking soda or just regular baking soda is a fantastic option for many patients. Moonstone powder is also a good option, has a lot of alkali therapy at a cost and uh, obviously comparison to uh, potassium citrate, uh, which can likely be the most expensive option for our patients. And this coincided well with the plenary by Dr. Brett Johnson from UT Southwestern, looking at the evidence of, of many of these treatments. So I encourage you to uh, uh, look at his presentation. 
Moving into surgical treatments, uh, this was a fantastic study from the EDGE group uh, presented by Dr. Nimagata. Um, uh, it was a randomized, blinded trial comparing Moses 2.0 laser lithotripsy to standard short pulse laser, laser lithotripsy. These were the settings they utilized, uh, which is consistent with, I think, many of our settings. Um, but in the Moses mode, they, uh, in the dusting mode for Moses, they used um, distance. In the popcorn setting, they used contact mode. And the, again, the surgeons were blinded to um, whether or not they were on, on the Moses 2.0 setting. So they had over 140 patients. Stones were 8 to 20 millimeters. Similar stone characteristics. And these were their outcomes. So in their primary outcome of operative time, they saw no significant difference between Moses versus standard. In their secondary outcome of stone-free rate, this was CT-based at six weeks after surgery. They saw no significant difference. I'll note that this was preliminary data. They have not had all patients had their six-week CT scan. Secondary outcome of surgeon fatigue, Moses showed significant improvement in all task load domains based on the NASA task load index. So using Moses was less effort for the surgeon. And then looking at retropulsion, which was a surgeon graded response, Moses had less, significantly less retropulsion than standard ureteroscopy. Fulium fiber laser has certainly penetrated many of our practices, and I think we all are uh, grateful for that, but we don't yet know the best way to treat or best way, best settings to use when treating stones. This was an in vitro study presented by Dr. Johnson uh, in the late breaking abstract session. So they used seven different human stone compositions, 13 different thulium fiber laser settings. They did note charring, as many of us see, uh, with, with uh, laser lithotripsy, most notably in uric acid stones, cysteine stones, and in brushite stones. I'm just going to put up this slide here and give you a minute to take a picture of it because uh, it saves us a lot of time in trying to figure out what the, what the best thing is. But I think this coincides with what I certainly do in my practice. 0.2 joules and 100 hertz is my most common setting. Um, Moving on to pressure, which is a hot topic nowadays in ureteroscopy. Um, this was a podium presentation from Dr. Krogan and the group from Ireland. Um, they used a novel pressure sensor and guide wire alongside the ureteroxal sheath when treating renal stones ureteroscopically. Um, and they compared sheath versus sheathless, as well as uh, gravity irrigation, pump irrigation, uh, and um, uh, pressure bags. Um, so looking at sheathless with gravity versus sheathless with man manual pump, you can see that the mean intrarenal pressure increased fairly significantly compared to just gravity irrigation. And looking at their data with a ureteral access sheath, gravity versus a 100 millimeter pressure bag or 150 millimeter pressure bag, you can see rising uh, irrigation pressure increases intrarenal pressure uh, most notably. I think the more significant finding from this study is that they had five patients who came back postoperatively with febrile UTIs concerning for urosepsis. In all five of those patients, the mean, mean intrarenal pressure during flexible ureteroscopy was significantly higher than those patients who did not have an infection. Now, they also had higher rates of pre positive preoperative urine cultures compared to the control group. So this tells us that likely not only pressure, but also that bacteria present is a, is a, is a concern. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip through this excellent study because I wanted to highlight uh, the, the product that I think many of us are very excited to see in its use in practice. Uh, this is the novel with a elite single-use ureteroscope that has an integrated pressure sensor that can measure real-time intrarenal pressure during ureteroscopy. This was published from the Canadian group, the first uh, 50 cases using this device. And you can see the intrarenal pressure in the top left corner measured with an axis sheath uh, stayed pretty low. However, without an axis sheath, uh, it rose significantly. So we now have the opportunity to measure real-time intrarenal pressure during the ureteroscopy. And they noted that higher pressures were seen in tighter ureters. That was just kind of commented per the surgeon. Lower pressures were seen in pre-stented patients 
and use of a ureteral access sheath. We don't quite know how to interpret all this data. We don't know what a safe pressure actually means. We don't know what risk factors are there to cause higher pressures, lower pressures, and we don't know the time component. Does high pressure for five seconds, ten seconds, a minute, two minutes, what actually matters? But we're going to do a lot of learning in the next, uh, uh, in the next year. The last studies I wanted to highlight were out of the University of Washington. This was um, uh, burst wave lithotripsy, burst wave technology. There's a great podium presentation by Dr. Bailey looking at uh, the use of burst wave lithotripsy uh, for human trials. For those who aren't aware, this is a handheld ultrasound device that gives short ultrasonic bursts to help fragment stones. So think of like shockwave in your pocket. Um, and we've all been quite excited to see uh, what this is what this is capable capable of. Uh, the group from Dr. Chu and colleagues presented uh, in the late breaking abstract session the um, first inhuman international multicenter clinical trial. They had uh, 44 patients. Um, you can see that most of these stones or, or many of these stones were in the distal ureter or near the UVJ. Mean stone size was 6 millimeters with a Hounsville unit of about 850, so relatively soft. Uh, they noted no serious adverse events. Their stone free weight was approximately 50%, although 90% in the distal ureter. Using that classic clinically insignificant residual fragment rate of less than four millimeters, they had a 70% success rate. Importantly, 50% of these patients required no sedation throughout the procedure. 36% did require some minor energies, I think like a dose of Toradol. Uh, and they had a 7% retreatment rate at 90 days. But this is exciting new technology that we will see in our practices in the hopefully near future. So thank you again. I look forward to seeing everybody in Jerusalem for World Congress and safe travels home. Thank you, Dr. Canvasser. Our next take home message will be delivered by Dr. Uh, Chris Doiron. It's on infection and inflammation. Dr. Doiron is assistant professor at Queen's University um, in Canada. Thank you. Um, thanks everyone. And uh, thanks for the opportunity to present uh, the take home messages for the infection and inflammation portion of the meeting. Um, so my disclosures, um, I will note that I am a co-author on one of the abstracts I'm going to be highlighting here where we looked at uh, vaccination against recurrent urinary tract infection. Uh, Immunotech and Redleaf Medical did support our work uh, looking at vaccination. Um, so I'm going to start uh, with chronic prostatitis, chronic pelvic pain syndrome. Not a lot of activity in this space uh, presented at this meeting, but I did want to highlight. Uh, so first take home message is that cannabinoids may represent a promising therapy for treatment of uh, CPCPPS. This is based on work by uh, Shin and colleagues um, where they looked at um, an animal model of inflammation and prostatitis treated with three different uh, cannabinoids. Um, so they showed that all three did decrease um, inflammation uh, using uh, uh, thought to be via the TLR4 uh, NFKB pathway uh, through reduction of COX-2 expression. So uh, the CBD alone did improve the prostatitis as well. So it'll be interesting to see that in a clinical trial. Uh, moving to interstitial cystitis bladder pain syndrome. So the second take home message is that three distinct phenotypes, non-urologic pelvic pain, myofascial pelvic pain and bladder specific pain have been validated in ICBPS. So this is based on work by Netty and colleagues. They uh, had this um, data from their pilot cohort where they had developed uh, three phenotypes and they sought to validate this in a larger cohort of uh, patients from the MAP cohort. 
Um, so they used AI techniques to uh, um, validate these three uh, phenotypes. And you can see here um, fairly distinct symptom patterns amongst these three phenotypes. So uh, I think it's safe to say that this has uh, uh, validated these three phenotypes in this disease. They also showed that the myofascial pelvic pain group uh, represented a fairly significant and severe uh, phenotype amongst a host of uh, outcomes. The third take-home message would be that targeted immunotherapy is an emerging treatment approach of ICBPS, and this is based on work by Herrera and colleagues. Uh, they looked at uh, hunter lesion biopsies, and they interrogated the immune microenvironment of these uh, biopsies using immunohistochemistry techniques, and they showed an upregulation upreg in the Th1, Th17-related uh, signaling pathways, as well as an upregulation in the B-cell signaling pathways. Um, they also showed increased levels of messenger RNA for genes involved in the Th1, Th17 pathways. And they particularly were interested in interferon gamma here, and they were able to develop an anti-interferon gamma aptamer. And they were actually able to study this in a mouse model, and again showed that anti-interferon gamma aptamer did decrease bladder inflammation, pelvic nociception, lower urine tract symptoms. So I think uh, it'd be interesting, again, to see this uh, in a clinical trial. Uh, moving to urinary tract infection, um, the fourth take-home message is that bacteriophage therapy may represent a viable non-antibiotic treatment of UTI that preserves innate immune memory. So this is based on work by Catherine Bausch and colleagues out of Switzerland, and they did use a mouse model to investigate urinary tract infection treatment with bacteriophage. You can see the strain of E. coli they used for that, as well as the bacteriophage HP3. So they were able to show that phage treatment did significantly reduce the bacterial burden and that this was a neutrophil-dependent process. And their prior work had showed that antibiotic treatment of urinary tract infection ablates an innate immune response to infection. Uh, however, that process was preserved in bacteriophage therapy. So again, it would be interesting to see this in clinical trials. The fifth take-home message is that vaccination continues to show promise in prevention of recurrent urinary tract infection. And this is based on two uh, abstracts. The first was a MV140 study um, by Nickel and colleagues. Uh, it was the first North American experience using MV140, a sublingual vaccine against recurrent urinary tract infection. So this is a polyvalent bacterial preparation for uh, strains of uh, bacteria, E. coli, Klebsiella, Enterococcus, and Proteus. And uh, we presented this case series of 67 patients who were treated with a vaccine sublingually daily for three months. So there was a UTI free rate in the nine-month efficacy period of about 40.6%, which is a little bit lower than what we've seen in the randomized clinical trials. There was a mean UTI rate, a reduction of about 75% during the nine-month efficacy period. And it does appear to be safe with 11 mild self-resolving adverse events and, and no, adverse, no serious adverse events related to the vaccination. This was a second um, vaccination trial, um, a retrospective study looking at auto-vaccination amongst um, neurogenic bladder patients. So this was a retrospective case series, 70 subjects, um, all with neurogenic bladder and recurrent urinary tract infection who were treated with UTI auto-vaccination. Prior to treatment, they had about 11 courses of antibiotics in the preceding 12 months. And then following vaccination, they did have a mean UTI-free period of about five and a half months, uh, some significant reduction in uh, emergency department visits and hospital admissions, and they were uh, improved or much improved on subjective evaluation at about 74%. And it did appear to be safe. 
The sixth take-home message is that intravaginal prasterone may be an alternative to intravaginal estrogen for prevention of urinary tract infection. Uh, this is based on work by Rubin and colleagues. And uh, so vaginal prasterone, or a DHEA, is currently indicated for the treatment of dyspareunia in women with genital urinary syndrome and menopause. And they were interested in exploring whether this could be an uh, alternative to intravaginal estrogen for prevention of recurrent UTI. And they looked at a cohort of women, over 22,000 women, using an open source a database who were treated with prasterone for at least 12 weeks. And uh, comparing to a matched cohort of uh, women who were not treated showed a significantly lower UTI prevalence. Um, and they also did a subgroup analysis looking at 286 women who were taking aromatase inhibitors and they showed that this decrease in UTI prevalence was uh, maintained in that group. Um, just going to close out with a note on pandemics. So, um, the monkeypox is a zoonotic virus with genital manifestations that are self-resolving. Um, so this is based on work by Suzar and colleagues out of the UK. Um, so we know in 2022 there was an outbreak of uh, monkeypox, which is a zoonotic virus endemic to Central and Western Africa, predominantly affecting men who have sex with men. And they showed in their case series of antigen positive cases uh, from uh, their hospitals in uh, London, uh, identified 199 men uh, who were antigen positive, And 19 of those are 10% presenting with penile lesions. Um, the lesions did manifest on a spectrum uh, from papules or pustules uh, to ulcerative and, and necrotic lesions. All the lesions were painful, uh, though all did heal without urologic intervention. So we have another diagnosis on a, our differential for the painful penile lesion. Um, and I'm just going to close out. This is uh, another take-home message, which is really more of an observation, but obviously a lot of great preclinical work in this space, but, um, and this is not a novel observation, but we certainly need some more randomized placebo-controlled uh, trials in this space. So thank you for your time. We hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to seeing you at AUA 2024 in San Antonio.